0: Welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, Unocoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. Enjoy. Uh,
1: My presentation does have a lot of little detail on the slides, Uh, so I do recommend people on that side of the room, since that's the only place where the screen is. Um, All right, I guess you have to practice my presentation. Everyone's outside networking, that's okay. Um, I'll be talking about this topic again later tonight uh, on the evening panel. Uh, How many of you have seen my presentations before? All right, can we go to the room? Um, So this is a brand new one. Uh, Last time uh, I spoke here in Canada. I spoke uh, specifically in Toronto. Uh, I spoke about Bitcoin and the history of the Bitcoin price and uh, uh, why Bitcoin is important economically, why we're not really in a bubble. Uh, and why Bitcoin price is going to be going up. Uh, This one's going to be a little bit different. Uh, My background is traditional Wall Street, but not trading. Uh, I was working at uh, Bear Stearns Asset Management in the risk analysis space. We used to build risk models. Uh, Trading is a hobby of mine, and I make daily videos on YouTube. I'm not affiliated with any companies, uh, just independent, doing research, trading, and uh, mostly I'm a My consulting is done helping uh, traders in the crypto space, be better traders with traditional experience. I recently had to uh, update my LinkedIn uh, mostly because I was just getting way too many connections that were asking me about uh, being advisor uh, of their ICOs. So I put the following at the front of my LinkedIn as uh, uh, in my summary and it specifically states I am not interested in your ICO or token sale. Please send all requests to Vitalik Buterin. Instead, who is responsible for this nonsense, uh, to know why your ICO or token sale is probably a scam. My consulting rate is 0.1 Bitcoin per hour. I'll be more than happy to explain it to you. Um, So that actually is on my LinkedIn if you go there. Uh, And based on my inbox, no one is actually reading it. Uh, But it is there, so I just point it to them sometimes. So I wanted to do a presentation comparing ICOs to the IPOs of the 90s. I very vaguely remember the IPO bubble. Uh, I was in college at the time when the dot-com burst. Uh, So that was very, very interesting. Uh, So I remember how it started. I remember when my college went from us checking email using Unix commands to us using one mail. That was like the greatest thing ever. Um, and uh, when me, one of my roommate had to use the internet. That means the phone is blocked. So God forbid that girl was going to call back. Uh, so let's just say there was a lot of arguments uh, back in those dorm days. Uh, so that's kind of how I remember the internet coming up. And um, this is, um, you, you see the dot .com bubble all the way on the side. It took 15 years for the value of the NASDAQ to recover. Uh, The value of the stock market fell about 90%. Now, the Dow and the S&P did not fall 90%. Those only fell about 50%, uh, maybe even a little bit less. But it was mostly the tech bubble. Uh, And I want to just zoom in on a couple of stories from that time, uh, because I started looking at it. And I'm like, OK, so this is similar. Uh, What the motivation for this presentation was, uh, even a few years ago, I was just in a conversation saying, oh my god, like. How could people be buying stocks on the NASDAQ, worth $100 a share, companies are worth billions of dollars, and then at the end of the day, it was nothing but a fancy website, and nothing really, no one's working on anything other than a fancy website. And I couldn't understand how people could fall for that, but now I'm seeing it in the ICO space right in front of me, and there's absolutely nothing I can do to stop it, other than occasional presentations. Um, So let's see how that works out. Um, so Alan Greenspan mentioned that in 1996 that we have irrational exuberance, and that was clearly uh, way, way, way ahead of time. Okay. Um, now let's zoom into some specific companies. Oop, jump on ahead. Um, so there is on November 13, 1998, uh, the Globe.com goes public and goes up 606% that day. Uh, here are the details of this amazing.com, and. Uh, it was in 1998, so a couple of years before the bubble. Uh, they expected the IPO of the stock to open at nine dollars. Uh, that day, it opened at 87, and it traded as high as 97 on that first day. Uh, and then after that, it was that was basically the high, uh, and it slowly started going down. Uh, in As the bubble burst, uh, the stock had already fallen uh, down to about uh, $10 and eventually got delisted. And then at the bottom, I don't have it highlighted, the way all of these things ended, pretty much the company had six um, big lawsuits against it. Uh, So I don't know if anyone remembers the globe.com, that one I really don't remember. Now getting closer to the bubble in December 9, 1999, a company called VA Lennox went public. Uh, Linux was basically Dell, but for Linux, right? So they were like, custom make your Linux machine. That actually broke the record of the globe.com, and that stock was expected to open at about $30 a share. It opened at almost $300 a share. Uh, that was pretty much the highlight, and you can see that what happened to that stock then after. It went all the way down until eventually it was trading four pennies. Uh, And this is exactly what we're seeing right now from the ICO space. These are just some of the history. This one I actually remember because I participated in cyber rebates. I wonder if anybody else did. So what cyber rebates did, it was a bit of a clever business model. They would sell you things for about 10 times the price of the object. So yeah, here, buy this uh, laptop for like eight thousand dollars when it's really worth like one thousand, but then you can submit a rebate and within six months you would get all of your money back, like hundred percent back. So their business model was there's no way every single person is going to request the rebate. Some of them are going to forget. Okay, so th- th- this was an actual business model, um, and uh, oh. Obviously, it didn't work out long-term. Uh, the company blew through all of its money. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, the last batch of people did not get their refund. And they got about $0.08 cents on the dollar, basically. All right? But these were some of the ideas that were coming out. And these companies were trading for an insane amount of money. Uh, but of course, the trick is getting out at the very top. So let's talk about one that got out at the very top, broadcast.com. Uh, And the big beneficiary for Broadcast.com, Mark Cuban, okay? And so Mark Cuban initially invested about $10,000 into a company that was already in existence. Uh, He was responsible for rebranding it to Broadcast.com, and Mark Cuban's motivation was basically he really wanted to listen to his college basketball games on the radio. Sorry, his college basketball games on the internet uh, instead of, like, the local radio. He wanted to put it on the internet. Uh, they managed to convince the original founder of the company to kind of give up his equity share and work for a salary, uh, making Mark Cuban one of the top uh, uh, equity owners of this company. Uh, the company went public, uh, making Mark Cuban $300 million on the company going public. About nine months later, Yahoo bought the company out, uh, making Mark Cuban a billionaire. Uh, at the time of the buyout, uh, it was estimated, based on the valuation that Yahoo gave them, that each listener to Broadcast.com was worth $10,000. Uh, Mark Cuban, of course, was smart enough to sell all of his Yahoo shares, uh, pulling out the billion dollars. Uh, Yahoo delisted Broadcast.com two years later. Okay? So it sounds like sometimes it's, it's just about how you get out. Um, as I was putting this together, I actually wasn't sure how Mark Cuban made all of his money. Uh, and how many of you here watched Entourage? Oh, good, a bunch of hands. You remember Mark Cuban in that show? In Entourage, towards the end, in the last couple of seasons. I guess he didn't watch it all the way through. Uh, he was involved in like funding a tequila company, uh, in that show. But now you got to put them all together, right? Who here watches Silicon Valley? Right. Putting internet on the radio, billionaire involved in a tequila. Um, think about it if you ever watch those shows. Man, but the show doesn't go really well. But um, so on Wikipedia, they give you like a giant list of all of the interesting companies that uh, succeeded or did, uh, that didn't really succeed and the ideas that they had. And uh, obviously, I can't go through all of them. I haven't even gone through all of them. But a couple of them are, are really, really interesting uh, because you have to realize that these ICOs, they're not really reinventing anything. Uh, here's one, eDigital basically changed its name to eDigital from something else in the telecom space and their stock went from six cents to 24 dollars just by rebranding the name and going in with the internet age. and of course very very recently we haven't seen anything different but the sec has already been involved in this i mean they they're not seeing anything new okay uh, and one of the publicly traded companies, it was a penny stock of course, uh, the moment they started talking about doing an ICO, uh, there it goes, their, their stock basically went from like a penny or a fraction of a penny, all the way to 40 cents. Uh, just on the rumor of, the, of them doing an ICO. And there was an almost, I mean it came two months late, but the SEC did suspend that company from trading. Because again, they've seen it before from the e-digital example. There's really not that much new. And even at the time, there were like competitors, right? I mean, everyone remembers Pets.com. I actually don't make fun of Pets.com at all. Uh, pets.com is Amazon. There was apps back then. There was no difference between Pets.com and Amazon. Two differences. One was the name, uh, and the other one was one started with books, and the other one started with pet food. Uh, it was really a 50-50 shot who was going to win uh, at the time. I mean, books obviously won. Uh, And then it became what it is today. And uh, that's one of the arguments, right? How come uh, the average people can't invest? How come early investment is only for the rich so they can become richer? And I I don't buy the argument, right? Just like, yeah, rich people get to invest their money in hedge funds, but the average hedge fund does not beat the market. Uh, Yes, rich people get to invest in in pre-IPOs, but we all know that, anybody here started a business? And you know, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. If you've started a business, right? So remember, um, it whether one business or many, and did your first business succeed? Uh, keep your hand up, otherwise put it down. All right, wow, a lot of hands are staying up here. Um, you all know that the average business doesn't succeed, right? Like The, the chances of, your business succeeding, especially like a brick and mortar, uh, are pretty low. Which is why I don't understand why people think that, well, if the average investor gets to invest in a business which does not have a good probability of success, then that's a good thing for the unqualified investor. Uh, and the ICOs are bringing that uh, basically to our world. And uh, a lot of this stuff has been done before, even things similar to Bitcoin. Here's an example. From the 90s. Let's see if it place. Let's get sound.
0: You gotta get a gift for a kid. You don't know what they want. Cush your roll yeah. old money. Give them flows, online gift rolls. It's just like money. You send it by email, they spend it at some of the web's coolest stores and you come out here. And smile. It's graduation day.
1: You heard her say it's just like money. Flooz was basically an attempt to do currency on the internet. It was promoted by Wookiee Goldberg in the late 90s, uh, and it was basically an attempt to do Bitcoin. Uh, It didn't succeed uh, at all, because it turns out that it was mostly used by Ray, it was mostly used for credit card fraud and uh, illicit transactions, and it was obviously centralized, and the FBI eventually came down on that venture uh, with a lot of lawsuits and uh, people lost money, of course, and they blew through all of the investment. And here's another story. Uh, this one I started again. I started googling some of the more interesting stories that weren't exactly on Wikipedia, and I ran into this one. And somebody wrote a story, and I'll just read the top of it. I knew a guy who had a company that was going to do something interesting in the field of telecommunications. or communications. Um, so he raised a little bit of money, hired a couple of guys. Uh, and bought space announcing the product on a huge billboard in San Francisco. There was no product, there was purely uh, aspirations, uh, but that was the kind of thing that people did in those times. Uh, basically, he ended up getting bought out for a hundred million dollars. Just one person. Uh, he had a contract. Uh, okay, so you come on board to our company for three years and help us integrate this. and. Uh, So he's on board, the company that bought them realized that he himself was kind of useless. Uh, They didn't really want him hanging around, so they said, hey, why don't you just take the 100 million and just go away, we'll do it on our own. Uh, After he walks away, he realizes, well, I didn't really have an idea, uh, so this company clearly doesn't know what they're doing, so I might as well short the stock. Uh, So that turned out to be even more profitable uh, than the 100 million he got. And uh, all of that for renting a billboard? Was anybody here at the big New York consensus conference back in May? A few, right? Oh, I see. Remember what was in Times Square? The nice billboard. You recognize that one? It just reminded me of this story. Uh, that billboard right there is uh, EOS. It was in Times Square during the uh, during the big consensus conference in New York. Um, but it's just. As you look back at like the dot-com bubble, it's amazing how many similarities there actually were. And now you start thinking, okay, well what helped drive the dot-com bubble? What was it really? And again, this is a story from college from living in the dorms. Um, I was a science major at the time, but a couple of my friends were finance majors, and E-Trade came out. And that was awesome, right? Anybody remember the baby commercials from E-Trade? E Trade, Scott Trade, man, you gotta go back and rewatch those commercials. Uh, I, the next time I do this presentation, I'll probably throw up one or two of them on uh, within the presentation. And uh, I remember one of the guys in my dorm, his brother gave him like $1,000, so he starts like trading petty stocks. Of course, he loses the $1,000 after like a couple of weeks, but um, I realized something. Prior to the mid to late 90s, the average person couldn't be a trader. It was that movie Boiler Room, right? Where they were supposed to call qualified investors, like doctors, lawyers. Of course, they were breaking the rules. They were calling like uh, a lower income people and trying to convince them to buy stocks. But there were still some restrictions, okay? Man, my views on regulation really changed in my three or four years of presenting. Uh, I'll mention that in a bit as well. But back then, there were still some restrictions you still could only trade stocks in the country where you reside. Uh, Like a European, it wasn't that easy for him to trade the American markets, so if you wanna trade the American IPOs, you kinda had to be an American. You also had to be 18 years old, you also had to have a bank account in order to open an E-Trade account. So there were some restrictions. You also needed $25,000 in your account to be a day trader, otherwise you gotta hold your stocks for about three days, that's that three-day settlement rule. Um, But it still became a lot easier. This is how your cab driver, this is how your barber, was able to talk about the latest IPO in the late 90s, because he now was able to do it from home by himself with E-Trade. Here come cryptos. No restrictions at all. No age restriction, no geographical restriction, and not even any kind of financial restriction, right? So if you only have $100 to your name, go, go and gamble. Go and gamble on these ICOs. And uh, the age restriction is really getting interesting, okay? Uh, it's an email I got recently. Uh, I kind of took out the uh, identifying information. Uh, but hey, dear Mr. Vase, I am 15 and a half years old in high school, and he's asking me for financial advice. At least he's asking me when is a good time to buy Bitcoin. Right? Uh, at least he's not asking about IPOs. And I've had similar discussions with people online because when you when someone hits you up online, you don't know how old they are, and then at the end of the conversation it's like, oh yeah, but, yeah, I trade cryptocurrencies all the time. Oh, by the way, I'm 13. You may not have known that. I wish I saved those because now they're kind of in the back of my chat. I think he's 15 now. But no age restriction, no restriction at all. So it's really, really interesting. Now, I was always... Um, The same way, hey, we don't need regulation, we don't need restriction, but then I realized, you know what, we kind of do when it comes to people soliciting other people's money. And that's the main difference, okay? Um, I think that uh, KYC and AML laws are absolutely terrible. Uh, I think that people should be allowed uh, to use their money in any way they see fit. I don't think money itself should be a crime. But if a company or a person is trying to solicit other people's money, that person needs to be regulated because he's asking strangers for money. And he needs to make sure that the people that they're getting money from are somewhat qualified to invest. Because otherwise, uh, the space becomes real with scams. And uh, this slide looked better uh, about three weeks ago or a month ago when I first made it. Uh, because that's the chart there on the left where Um, the market cap of all crypto combined made a new high but the market cap excluding Bitcoin had already started to go down. The recent rise in Bitcoin has kind of lifted all boats once again but um, there was fear that Bitcoin was going to lose out to these ICOs like Ethereum Uh, and they came close but now I believe there is a reversal and uh, I think this ICO bubble is slowly coming to an end. It didn't get as big as the dot-com bubble, but um, and so you already see that the market cap of Bitcoin is going up. And there is a big difference in Bitcoin and ICOs. I will get into that in one second. I'm doing good on time. Um, here's one of the big problems with ICOs. And this is from a tweet from Alex Marcos, a Bitcoin core developer. There's one big difference between traditional startup funding and ICOs. Founders of failed startups should not come away financially enriched. Uh, and then he goes on. Risk capital to explore ideas is great, but incentives aren't aligned if founders make money at expense of investors regardless of outcome, okay? And uh, just yesterday, I had to reply to someone uh, so, I sent one of my own where it says ICOs are basically centralized schemes where you create securities or you're just printing your own money uh, in a completely unregulated way to separate unqualified investors from their money or Bitcoin to fund your dream. I'm more politically correct here for the presentation. Uh, Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a decentralized asset class that some people choose to use as money. Though no, I like to co- I like to refer to it as uh, a value transfer, uh, because money and currency have specific definitions that rely on having a government that Bitcoin doesn't have. That, um, so it's quasi used as a currency, uh, but I don't think it can actually be defined as a currency. Okay. Um, so since I still have a few minutes, my views on ICOs, and uh, Ethereum wasn't the first ICO, but it was. Are far the biggest and it's still with us the biggest. And uh, as an example um, I have been picking on Ethereum lately uh, and all of the ICOs have at least one problem that Ethereum does. Now Ethereum is being sustained and it's now a platform for other ICOs to be built on. Uh, but my problems with Ethereum are basically twofold and they extend to every other ICO which is why I pick on Ethereum. Um, first of all I believe there's a big regulatory issue because like 80% of all the Ethereum tokens were basically created by the Ethereum foundation. Uh, there were like eight founders of Ethereum and seven of them walked away a little while ago, leaving just one uh, Titanic, uh still with the project. Uh, so that goes to Alex Marcos' thing, like the moment you sell your ICO, you can walk away. That's it, the money is yours, there's no restriction. Without having that VC funding, and I know the terms aren't that great, uh, but without anyone looking over you, you have nobody there to even you know tell you, hey, are you gonna actually build this thing or not? Uh, you have absolutely uh, like no, no one, no, no one there watching you. Uh, so I think there's a huge regulatory problem. To me, it was always a security. I never participated in the Ethereum ICO. I'm like, wait a minute, they just created a security, and it's being traded as such. Uh, so I think there's a huge regulatory issue. Uh, beyond that. Um, It's hard to get like really technical people to come in publicly, but there's a huge technological problem Like I don't understand how that blockchain can actually scale. Uh, It's growing at a crazy rate I don't know anyone that can actually download that whole blockchain Uh, and uh, Technologically, it's so much harder to scale than Bitcoin and uh, many people think that it's actually going to be impossible Uh, The other problem is just conceptual and uh, I've always debated why do we need decentralized smart contracts? Like smart contracts are great Uh, It's awesome when things are self-executing. The problem happens when you try to decentralize it. Uh, Decentralization is a pretty technologically expensive process. I mean, look at Bitcoin. Everyone is complaining it's now drawing more electricity than like 40 or 50 countries. Uh, Yeah, it's expensive and it's very inefficient. But you need that expense and inefficiency uh, in order to prevent censorship because every single payment that we do outside of Bitcoin is in a way censored. Uh, because there is uh, somebody in the middle. Uh, File sharing kind of works the same way, which is why it needs to be decentralized. When it comes to contracts, there's really no censorship involved unless you're dealing with, let's say, North Korea and their sanctions. So if there's no censorship involved, uh, why are you going to such a technological expense of decentralization? Uh, And to me, that actually never made sense. And uh, the fourth point of uh, contention that I have with these ICOs is the idea of an application token. Well, you have to have my token to use my product. It's kind of like a casino works, like a casino will have their own casino chips, but notice how they're not speculative in themselves. They're pegged to the dollar, or whatever currency it is that the casino, whichever jurisdiction the casino is in. Uh, In this case, you have a token with speculative value that is necessary to use the product. And to me, that's kind of like Amazon saying, we would have been a bigger company if people could only use Amazon stock in order to buy from Amazon. Um, to me, that's the idea of an application token, turning every one of your users into a speculator. Uh, and it gets more complicated than that, because, well, how do you get Apple stock? Well, you've got to go to E-Trade, and you've got to buy it. Oh, wait, but E-Trade only accepts E-Trade stock as its own currency. right? And it becomes this loop. Right, where every single company has basically, is basically making its own money. Uh, I'm also going to quote uh, one of my friends, uh, Vortex, from the World Crypto Network, where he sent out this popular tweet saying, you know, I got into Bitcoin because I really didn't like the idea of governments just randomly printing money. And now all I see around me is crypto is everyone wanting to print their own money. Uh, so it's a really interesting situation. Um, all right, so that's pretty much it. That's kind of my views on ICOs. Uh, I guess what of the comment before I take a couple of questions. I still have a little over 10 minutes. Uh, people also complain like, oh my god, you know, Facebook is so bad. They just, uh, they're not giving anything back to their users, and they're profiting so much. And um, again, this goes back to the BC days, right? I mean, who remembers when Facebook was coming out? First of all, they weren't even the first, right? There was MySpace. There was Friendster. Uh, There was high five, there was uh, women, uh, and uh, those are just the ones I remember off the top of my head. There were probably like 40 or 50 of these things, all smaller ones. And the idea that if you were able to invest in the early stages, you were gonna pick the right one, it's it's kinda silly, you don't know. That's why people that can afford to lose this money uh, do have first access to it. However, most of these companies eventually go public. Right? Nothing was that. I remember Facebook opened at 40 bucks, and it was grossly overvalued. That was a little bad. It fell in price down to 20 bucks within a few months. Uh, anybody could have bought Facebook stock, right? Facebook stock is almost 200 bucks now, right? Uh, so there are ways for the public to make money off of these things. So that's why people say, it's like, oh, Facebook is ripping us off. Well, why didn't you buy their stock 10 years ago? You know, they, anybody could have bought it you know, once it eventually goes public uh, when it's safer. Um, so that's kind of my views on the situation. Um, you can just find me on YouTube and Twitter. I'm uh, Tom Vase. I have my own YouTube channel. I'm also on the World Crypto Network. And um, not working for any company, independent trader uh, as well. Uh, not altcoins. I like keeping my Bitcoin safe and cold storage. I still trade traditional markets. Um, all right, guys. Thank you, and I'll be on the ICO panel later. I really hope nobody on that panel um, heard this because it'll be interesting when I bring some of these topics up. <laughs> all right, questions. Yes. Uh, we have CPOE futures and CME futures coming up for the next. Of weeks to um, sure. I actually just made a video about it like two days ago. So. It's interesting, like I'm actually, uh, the video that I just did was with like an old school uh, futures trader from like the 70s, and he still, he trades Bitcoin futures now, he loves it. And I think that them being cash settled is not going to have a big effect on the price of Bitcoin. Uh, I mean right now it's having this weird effect where some people think this is a great thing, some people think it's not a great thing, but it seems to be raising the price in the price. But to me, them being cash settled is equivalent to futures on the indices, like the S&P 500 and uh, like the NASDAQ. And uh, because of that, you're buying and selling the future on the S&P, but it's very difficult for you to go and manipulate the underlying price of the S&P because that's 500 stocks. That's pretty much impossible. Uh, because the futures of the S&P are not the price discovery of the S&P, the 500 stocks are the price discovery of the S&P, but not the futures. Now, while the stock market is closed, the futures become price discovery off hours, like what happened with the Trump election, which was hilarious actually. Because uh, I remember the week before, I found out that Hillary had like seven to one odds. Uh, Trump was given seven to one odds. And I'm like, oh my God, I gotta go place a bet. I don't understand how it's seven to one. At least it should be 50 50. And I kind of thought Trump would win. But the crazy part was, every time Trump would lead in the polls, the stock market would dip. Every time Hillary would lead in the polls, the stock market would go up. And on my podcast, my podcasts are mostly trading and economic center. And I'm like, I don't understand. Hillary is like, you know, a borderline communist, and Trump is a capitalist who wants to lower taxes. The stock market should love Trump. Then Trump gets elected, the stock market crashes in the futures market, and by morning is back to normal because people realized that that was an insane position. But at night, when the stock market's closed, the S&P futures are price discovery, but not during trading hours. So, um, on the other hand, when it comes to gold, the few, because the futures are physical delivery of gold, even though like maybe less than five percent actually gets delivered, everybody else cancels their contracts. But the threat of physical delivery makes futures the price discovery mechanism. And that's why the futures are able to affect the price of gold so much. Uh, so I actually think that uh, it'll be more like the S&P futures uh, than the gold futures. But it's so weird because the futures will be closed over the weekend but Bitcoin's still trading. So it's going to be a very weird dynamic. I don't know who would want to hold those futures through the weekend. It just seems completely crazy. Um, so that's the features. I thought like five minutes, right, Sonny? Uh, the... yes. All, right. All right, any more questions?
0: Yes. What would be your prognostication, a big way of where to come in on the features market and try to manipulate it? Um, so
1: the only way I see that, right, Look, he can like try to sell a bunch of contracts, I'll say, or buy a bunch of contracts, right? But he needs someone on the other end willing to uh, cover the other end of the position, right? So he can like skew the price. And someone's like, yeah, you know what, I'll take that short-term trade because it's gonna pull back. Now in order for him to like manipulate it, he would have to buy the Bitcoin ahead of time. Let's <laughs> say he wanted to short Bitcoin and then crash the market, right? He'd have to, maybe that's what's happening now, right? Maybe a lot of the uh, like hedge funds or something, they're buying up Bitcoin right now to raise the price of Bitcoin for when the futures open. And then when the futures start trading, they have a bunch of Bitcoin. So if they short in the futures market, they can then wait till near expiration or at any time actually, and then dump all of the Bitcoin that they actually physically bought in the Bitcoin exchanges to dump the price from the future that they sold short. But it's again, it's a gamble, right? Because price is already starting to dip a little bit. They're holding out to the Bitcoin. They would have to dump the Bitcoin. And they can only do it once, right? Because then they'd have to buy that Bitcoin back. So you don't know if they're going to be winning or losing on that deal because there's always a bigger whale. Uh, so it's a gamble. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to manipulate it long term. Short term, like little skimming, that's possible. Like, you know, like when Deutsche Bank got accused of manipulating the price of gold, uh, they manipulated it by like, on average about 10 cents a day in the afternoons. You know That's why I don't really believe in long-term manipulation, just like short-term uh, to catch a margin. All right. Thanks, guys.
0: Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate The Send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.